0: A listener production. People kept saying to me, they said to me, like, "Oh, oh my God,
1: you you're sustainable. You use oh well you and you make in Australia. Well, you should big B corp." And I'm like, "What's that?" People are really wanting to consciously purchase things that you know are doing the right thing. So I think there's going to be a real shift. Hey,
2: welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. How do you build a fashion brand that's driven by purpose and also makes a profit? That's the question we're asking BASIC co-founder Mary Lou Ryan and the founder of Bondi Bond, Dale McCarthy. BASIC was established by Lou and her business partner Deborah Sams in 2006 with a vision to create luxurious and wearable everyday pieces. The basic philosophy is centered on high quality design with a commitment to sustainable manufacturing and supporting our local industry. Dale created Bondi Born to empower and inspire the summer style of women all over the world while never compromising on quality, people or the planet. They're one of only a few Aussie fashion brands to become B Corp certified. A rigorous measure of a company's impact on its workers, customers, community and the environment. Ladies, welcome to the Balcony Bar at Afterpay Australian Fashion Week. And thank you so much for joining us on the Lady Brains podcast. Lovely to be here. Yay. So we wanted to kick off by asking how do you both feel being here this year after what was quite a challenging year for the fashion industry? I mean, it's just been a fabulous week. And we're so lucky being in Sydney, aren't we? Mm. Yeah.
0: Sorry, miss, all those people in Melbourne. Well, yeah, we're, we're from uh, Melbourne. We're from Melbourne. So. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we, we Don't did the mad dash last week. week. Squeaked in.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's
0: it's just fantastic. You can just see that everyone's smiling and Mm. happy and excited to be here. And the shows have been amazing. So it's just a great
3: celebration of Australian fashion. It definitely is. So we'd like to throw back a little bit and hear a little bit more about both of your origin stories. So, Dale, we'll start with you. Mm -hmm. So you have a very impressive resume. You were the founding partner of VC Fund Foundry Group and you've had roles in strategy and M&A at places like Fairfax Media. Why did you decide to take the leap into starting your own business, your own brand, at such a high point in your career? I'd
0: always wanted to have my own business, but I was having such fun in my jobs. Yeah. It was hard. And also I had children. And so I kept putting it off and putting it off. Um, I was very blessed. I mean, Fairfax Media, I was there from the sort of, you know, dawn of, Fairfax Digital, right through to, you know, when the newspapers no longer um, prospered. Um, And it was just an amazing journey. Um, And I had, as I said, I had children in that time. And I knew that if I had my own business, I'd have to work like a dog. And I didn't want to take away from, I wanted to find more balance with my children. So when my kids hit sort of, you know, early teens, I went, okay, it's time. So I took the leap. And how was it? (laughs) it's funnily enough it's a little bit like having children it's it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my entire life particularly the first few years when I didn't know what I was doing and you know I wasn't making any money um but it's also one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my entire life so I wouldn't change that I've done it um maybe I I may not have chosen fashion because it is incredibly complicated complex business but now that I've done it, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very, very happy.
2: So obviously, you know, the name of the brand is Bondi Born, but you did launch with a global focus. You yes. launched overseas, yes. And that's interesting. We were talking to Rebecca Valance on Monday, and she has taken, she took the same approach, right? She launched, launched internationally before coming back home. Yes. Why did that make sense for you and your brand?
0: Yeah. Well, apparently, uh, uh, that's not what you're meant to do. Everyone's like, <laughs> why did you do that? That's
2: not. I'm like, oh. Well, because I
0: was a digital person, you know, I I knew that I didn't just have to open a store down the street, that I could sell a product and build a brand globally. So that's what I set out to do. Um, I wanted to build an iconic Australian brand and sell it to the world. And Bondi Born as a name was a conscious choice um, because I wanted to take the fabulousness of Australia and contemporary Australian style and... And I knew that, you know, English people, my husband's English, you know, they all love Australians. You go there and they, oh, they love Australia. And, you know, Americans love Australia. Mexicans love Australia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was, it was strategic from a marketing point of view to deliver a brand that people could be looking on the racks in any city around the world and go, oh, that's an Australian brand. And everyone around the world knows that Australians make the best swimwear. That's our reputation. So I wanted to have a product that was authentically um, Australian and had its roots and its credibility and, and brought with it a whole bunch of positives from
3: Australia. So that was the, you know, the strategic puzzle that ended up with Bondi Born. And how did customers respond? Did you experience traction fairly early on? Yes. Well, the first thing I did, I made, uh, I, you know, I was, it was a trial. I
0: didn't really know it was going to work or not. I made a thousand sets of um, you know bikinis and one pieces and sent them to Europe. Put them in a warehouse in London and then called up all these e-commerce stores in England and went, "I got this stock here." You know, it's, it was April. Um, you know, would you like to sell it? And they went, "Oh, okay, but I bought. Wow!" <laughs> so they had no idea that I would just made it up. Just started. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, a have, they thought, oh, this brand must be Australian. It's been around forever. <laughs> anyway, so the good thing was that they took it and I sold out in six weeks. Wow. And so wow. I was like, okay, this thing has some legs. So then I really, that was my test. Um, and then I sort of started to take it more seriously and, you know, spend that, more time huh? in design and fabrics and making it and everything. But that was my initial test.
2: Yeah, lovely. So Lou,
3: your origin story is a little bit, different, I mm. guess. You've been around for 15 years. You've been growing really steadily, incrementally over that time. Can you tell us a little bit about the early days and when did you start to feel like there was something in your idea, in your concept?
1: Look, I think, I mean, Deb and I had a background in fashion. Um, we worked in buying, we worked in product. Um, so we had quite a bit of industry experience before we actually started BASIC. And, um, the interesting thing is I never thought that it was not not going to work. And I think that sort of blind sort of optimism got you through the early stages, because if you didn't have that, I think it'd be very hard to keep going because it is so difficult. <laughs> um, but, you know, we we sold our first collection. Um, we we launched the brand in the June and then we delivered in, in the November and we had an, a really great response straight up. We were like, OK, I think we've kind of got something here. Um, the funny story, really, um, about when we, we did deliver our first collection was that when we sold our jersey, um, we kind of sold, sold it with it you know, a little bit shorter and didn't have any of the quirks. And then when we actually produced it, um, we did something with the patterns and the shrinkage, and all of a sudden the seams came out twisted and everything came out. <laughs> oh, <outside>. no. <laughs> So we had all these orders to fill and we're like, okay, what are we going to do with the brand? And we're like, do you know what? This actually feels right. And so that's how we sort of started with the oversized twisted jersey with all the raw scenes. With a mistake. Um, You've got to start, with a, with start a, somewhere. Yeah. With a big mistake. But, um, yeah, it's just been, um, I think, you know, we we knew strategically where we wanted to position the brand. And, you know, we were certainly um, positioned it at a very sort of that high-end sort of luxury market where we were sitting next to import luxury brands and, we want. We loved that whole high-low concept of jersey back with tailoring, um, and so I think even for the retailers at the time to have a price point in that business that wasn't excessive, um, you know, we just sorted nicely. And then as the brand evolved and the customers wanted more product, the category mix, you know, changed and developed.
2: Was the inspiration for it a personal one? Is it something that you were looking for that you needed, or did you see the demand in the market? How did you kind of
1: happen upon? yeah i think um i mean we used to travel a lot for work you know and buying trips and um we always bought you know jersey overseas in america or you know out of sort of more luxury brands um and we kind of felt there was certainly an opportunity to move into that kind of you know jersey type um, market and then yeah obviously the opportunity came and when we started developing the fabric we started looking for alternative ways and something that would develop something new and interesting um and that's sort of how we you know discovered you know using organic cotton and sort of becoming that sort of more sustainable brand and that sort of was really the start of it
2: yeah nice so you are here solo tonight but you do have yes. a co-founder i do I shout do. out to her hi Dee. hi <laughs> i'd love to know what's your relationship like we love a good founder duo obviously there's two of two us, us as you can see um how do you know each other? How did you, where does it where, take us back to when
1: you met and what's your relationship like? So we met working for another business. I'd actually moved up from Melbourne. I'm originally a Melbourne girl. Woo-woo! Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Deb and I had started at a company together and we were like a couple of months apart. So we were kind of the new kids on the block um, and just sort of straight away we became friends, and then we actually lived together as flatmates. Um, we've traveled the world together. We've, you know, we've spent a lot of time together. We certainly have that sister dynamic, for sure, where we probably give each other the shits all the time. And, you know, <laughs> but, Sounds you know, well right. we, um, <laughs> you know, but we have, you know, very open communication. And, you know, we always talk things through and you know, we don't often always see eye to eye. But, you know, I think that comes with you know, respect and honesty and you know, transparency. And um, so, yeah, we have a good time together.
3: So one of the reasons that you're both here and we both love your brand, you're both of your brands, is that you're both focused on building brands on purpose and in profit. And I guess throwing this out to both of you, when you were coming up with the concept, how did you think about building a purposeful and profitable business?
0: Um, to be honest, I didn't set out to be a sustainable brand. Um, my goal was to have, uh, you know, to be Australia's first truly luxury, high-quality swimwear brand. That was my goal. Um, and But when I got into understanding and looking at all the fabric choices, I suddenly became aware of, oh, my God, well, this factory in Italy, it's, you know, makes everything incredibly, it's all sustainable, it's eco-certified, it lasts 10 years longer than other things, it does all these amazing things to the body. Or I could go and buy the one from, you know, the... Asia. And, you know, it cost a quarter, quarter of the amount, but it would fall apart, you know. So it, for me, it was always about doing the right thing and doing the best possible thing that I could do um, and never compromising on quality. And so every, that sort of became part of every decision. So then I'd go, okay, well, now I've got to do some packaging. Uh, well, okay, I need to use recycle cardboard because that's the right thing to do and that's a, and it was sort of an incremental thing for me I didn't you know I didn't set out to be an eco warrior or anything it was about just doing what's right and what um, you know was the best thing for the brand and for the world so it just sort of came together and it was and I have to admit you know it's probably about three years maybe four years into the journey people kept saying to me they said to me like oh Oh my God! You use sustainable. You use oh well. You and you make in Australia. Well, you should big B Corp. And I'm like, what's that? Um, you know, you should promote that more. And I'm like, oh really? Okay. And so I was only sort of realized that what I was doing was aspirational, and you know, it was sort of a trend. So I was a little bit you know a bit slow on the uptake. Um, but once I realized that, then we sort of really um, put everything that we did as a business analysed it and made sure that we were doing the right thing. Like, you know, I'd literally go and say, that button, can't we get another button? We know that button's made of plastic. Get, get another, I don't want that label. That's you know. So we just sort of bit by bit changed and improved everything. Um, and what's wonderful actually about the B Corp process is that it does say to you, you really need to be a business that balances profit and purpose and that, like, I have to have my the constitution for the business, like the shareholders' agreement, in there We st- you have to state that you all the shareholders have to agree that this business is a balance between profit and purpose and that it's not just about profit. You have to look after your workers. You have to, you know, it, it protect your supply chain. You know, you have to do all that sort of stuff. So the B Corp process was a really great educational process for us to make sure that that was part part of our mentality and every aspect of our business from my shareholders down to you know my junior workers and the workers in our the the, um, supply chain we get them all to sign our shareholders sorry our supplier agreements they've got to agree to this and that etc so it's it's been an evolving process for us
2: and what about you Lou was it intentional or was it more aligned to your personal values in the way that you've
1: built this business yeah, look, I think it was um, it was both. I think you know, working in the industry, you get a very intimate knowledge of you know how things are manufactured, um, and so you know when we started Basic, there was certainly um, production was just moving offshore at a very rapid rate, and the industry in Australia manufacturing was was in decline, um, and we were seeing that happening and so when we started basic we were like okay how can we build a brand that talks about true cost and and how can we build a you know a a product that you know we're paying people fairly and that we're buying the fabric for the right price and we're paying the our our makers for the, the right price and so that kind of really built the foundation so that was kind of our first part of um you know our intention to kind of you know act responsibly and to work with our partners and to make good decisions, um, and that kind of has sort of built the the philosophy and how we how we do business. And then obviously, when we looked at our fabric choices again, you know it started with okay how can we how can we produce a, a t-shirt and how can we do it in the right way with you know with the best process and. So those two things together really built the brand and that sort of built the philosophy and that has been sort of our story for, you know, 15 years.
3: Do you ever feel like there's a tension between purpose and profit? I think we work with a lot of, you know, early stage founders who are building brands who want to be more sustainable, who, you know, have aspirations to, you know, be on purpose, I guess, but it comes at a cost and, you know, affects the bottom line. So... How do, you, how do you manage that tension in your business between the two? Or is there a tension? Um,
0: well, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm a perfectionist and I'm very stubborn and <laughs> I just want to do things the way I want to do them and I want to do them right. So, I mean, we still, you know, we still, like, there's a formula in fashion that you multiply the cost of goods by a certain amount to get the wholesale price and then the wholesalers, you know, the retailers multiply. So we still apply, you know, most of that but um you know so we do we do make money but um i probably don't make as much money as if i if i made everything you know overseas but for me it's not a race to make as much money as possible um and i think that i think that is driven probably by the fact that i'm the founder and it's my business mm. i do have shareholders but they know what they're getting in for It's mm. not like come on board you're gonna lose money it's like <laughs> come on board and this is what we do we're quality we're luxury you know and we are gonna you know got global domination so we are gonna grow and you will get you know you will make money but it's not like you know if you're if you're a publicly listed company it's like oh my god you have got to grow by this much percentage and you improve your margin i mean i've been through it at fairfax you know like it's s- scrutiny on the numbers day in day out so i think the fact that we're you know females we're the founders which t- under our control we um I don't find much tension actually in it. Um, it works for me. I mean, actually, I do. I mean, our wholesale, our retail um, partners and our agents do say, your prices are high. That's expensive. And I said, well, that's because it's organic silk from Italy and I made it in Australia. That's why it's expensive. So do you want it or not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take it all over. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that particular dress I was referring to, it's sold out on Moto Operandi. Um it you know we didn't sell that many units in Australia but you know there's a there's a market for it you know some people are willing to pay for that and so we'll just keep providing that and we'll find the people
1: that want to pay for it and there's a real education piece too that's starting to happen people are really wanting to um, you know consciously purchase things that you know are doing the right thing so I think there's going to be a real shift and you know I think for businesses that are st- that are starting to um, to develop, you know, if you don't have the mix of purpose and profit, I think I think your business just won't sustain. It's just not possible. What
3: advice would you give to people who are sort of at the beginning of the journey in terms of, you know, um, wanting to build a brand that's more sustainable or move their brand towards sustainability? What advice would you give those founders?
1: Well, I think, you know, the most important thing is just to start. I think if you can actually start to... Um, yeah, I think also, too, when you think about sustainability, you know, it's not just about your fabric choice anymore. Like, people go, oh, I'm a sustainable f- fashion brand. It could be just the fabric that they're choosing. But it's actually such a holistic um, – you have to have a much more holistic approach to your business. So, sustainability for me is really about – and the way that we build BASIC is about, you know, long long-term partnerships and – relationships and, you know, what's your transport looking like and who are your logistics partner and what kind of lighting and how are you building your stores and what kind of lighting. And so there is so much more to sustainability now, um, which can be very overwhelming. Um, but I think you just have to start and you've got to be, you know, willing to go there and, I think, you know, certification and verification is such a big part of the process now too. I think you can't just come out and say you're a sustainable brand without your own either internal metrics or, you know, B Corp or whatever it might be. But I think, you know, verifying and certifying that along the way is also a very important part of the process to be able to talk to it you know, with authority and to authentically to it as well. Yeah, amazing.
2: So, Lou, this year you were able to offset the carbon emissions from um, the creation of your show, your runway show, which is just incredible. Can you tell us what that process was like? What are some of those carbon emissions that are are created Um, and how did you go about offsetting that?
1: Sure. So we worked with... um, a company called Pangolin Associates. So we've been working with them over the last couple of months, actually, to take our organisation through to carbon neutrality. Um, So it just sort of felt very natural for us, you know, coming to Fashion Week, which, you know, we know sort of the contribution that the industry has to, you know, a carbon footprint. Um, So it felt very natural for us to actually sort of embed that, you know, into our business practice. So when you kind of talk about carbon neutrality, they you you work out and you measure... um, your carbon footprint, and that is from, you know, for the shows in particular. So that was about um, our electricity, it was about transportation, it was about our guests how were they getting to and from the show? Were they international guests, interstate guests? Um, so you go through that whole process of um, measurement. And then once you get to that point, you know, the first protocol really around sort of carbon footprint is looking at um, reduction and then what you can't reduce, um, you offset. So then we worked back with um, a foundation in uh, Tasmania, which was in sort of forest regeneration. And then we worked with the Amazon as well to support forest regeneration as well. Um, So yeah, we're sort of, you know, it's something of a big focus for us because, you know, the the fashion industry is such a big contributor um, in terms of, you know, our greenhouse gas emissions. And it's such a big part of making sure that we can, again, make responsible choices. And, you know, it's sort of, yeah, embedded into our, you know, into what we want to do for the future of our business.
3: Dale, you um, donate 1% of your revenue to charity and you also plant a tree for every delivery. Tell us more about that. It's amazing.
0: Well, they're just things that, you know, things that you can do. I mean, you know, it's, I, I had the same feeling like every time we ship something on, you know, Australia Post is theoretically carbon neutral, but we do ship globally and it does make me feel a little bit guilty. So so you know it was a I mean the 1% for the planet thing was just a natural progression where we sort of said okay we have to give back. What we we were originally giving back to female charities, when we first started, just that's what we did and then we decided to with going through the big Corp process, we decided let's just focus on the environment because it's getting a little bit Scary, and we've got to do something about it. So, we focused all our giving to um, environmental charities. And then I realized, oh, actually, well, through the B Corp process, that there's this thing called 1% for the planet, and then they verify all your giving and they sort of, you know, ensure that you're, they look at your books and make sure that you give 1%. So, I just think it's just, it's again, it's sort of avoiding the whole greenwashing thing. It's just, it just keeps you honest and it, and it, the people in our business or decide what you want to give things to et cetera et cetera and then when we send something to America you know we plant we well, actually wherever we send things through e-commerce we plant trees and those each of those trees you know creates 20 absorbs 20 kilos of carbon a year and and we're going through um, the whole carbon neutrality certification process as well I mean that takes another you know year or something to go through. So it's just, they're just all the little things you pick up as you go along. And, it, and to answer to your question earlier, to say to founders, I mean, don't be afraid of it. It's not that I haven't found it that hard. It hasn't really hurt our business or made it life more difficult. It's easy. you, know, you just got to make the right decisions. In everything that you do, you just sort of say, I could do it that way or I could do it that way. I'm going to do it that way because that's the, you know, the moral way to do it and it's a better thing for the people I work with and the planet. So I'm going to do it that way. I I haven't found it
2: difficult at all. You said it's something that you do and obviously it was founded on the principles of sustainability. But I find that you don't necessarily put this at the forefront of your brand, which I do find really interesting. Why is
1: that the case? Uh, Yeah, look, it's always been... um, It's always something that we've wanted to talk about. Um, I just feel that, you know really up until sort of the pandemic, no one really was that interested in knowing about where your product was made or um, where your fabric came from. So, you know, it's something that we've been wanting to do for a long time um, to talk about it. Even just making in Australia, we had customers that would come in and be like, oh, this is made in Australia, that's amazing. It's like, yeah, we've been doing that for 15 years. And so I think it wasn't really until, you know, the customer really wanted to hear our story um, that it's been able to sort of, you know, we've been able to kind of really talk about it and, and I think especially with what's happening at the moment with, you know, the global global issue, um, people are now starting to really understand and make uh, more conscious choices. So it's, I think the time is right and people really want to know our story. So it hasn't been, um, again, hasn't been a decision that we haven't wanted to share. It's just whether or not um, people really wanted to hear it.
3: Is that your experience too with your customers, that they're becoming more conscious consumers is, as a result of, you know, everything that's happening I in the world? I definitely
0: think the pandemic shined, or has shone a light on it and people maybe beforehand were like, oh, yeah, you know, this climate change thing, yeah, maybe it'll happen. But then the pandemic went, oh, my God, the world could end. <laughs> you know, this climate change thing actually is real. Um, so it definitely has shifted consumer sentiment um yeah we didn't we didn't put stuff on our website you know I, I realized suddenly one day I figured out that this site called good on you had rated us and it rated us as sort of like you know average and I'm like well how come I'm average on sustainable? oh you haven't got this up there you've got to put this up publicly you've got to do all this so you, you know it, it as a brand you sort of go oh okay well I've actually got to try and make this more public now because people do want to hear it and
3: people do want to see it which is great. Do you feel a sense of um, responsibility that as sort of thought, you know, as thought leaders and examples in the fashion space, um, do you feel a sense of responsibility to talk about it
1: more so that you can kind of share your practices with other brands and other founders? Absolutely. And I think it becomes to, you know, the sustainability space, you just can't be one brand doing it. You know, you really have to drag the whole industry through. And I think you know, that sharing of information and talking about what you're doing and how you can do it as a business, you know, will only kind of um, allow other businesses that want to get involved to start to think about and start to talk about it. So I think it's a really, um, it's such a nice thing to actually connect the whole industry together because we, we, we all have to make conscious choices and I think the industry to survive we need the whole global industry to be moving in a more sustainable direction
2: You're absolutely right. who do you look to within Australia or from a global perspective, which other brands do you look to to kind of set that benchmark? Who else is doing this really really well?
1: there's a couple of brands I think you know I think you know, obviously Stella McCartney has certainly led the charge when it comes to, um, you know she's in terms of her leather position and working in sort of that more vegan space. Um, So I think she's done a a wonderful job. I think brands like Ganny have done a good job, Allbirds. I think there's some really interesting brands that are going to continue to drive sort of innovation and and inspire other brands to do things. Um, I think, again, everyone has their own position too in terms of what they want to represent and what their journey is and what their plan is for their own business. but, you know, you're even hearing at a very luxury level all the way through that there is so much conversation around sustainability. You can see Gucci even talking about it now, even all the way right through to H&M. So I think if you're not talking about it in your business, um, I think it's going to be really hard for you to continue to to produce and develop and grow because there's, it's just not, um, it's almost not acceptable anymore. We hope so. <laughs> do you think the industry is ready? Like, do you think the industry is is there? Absolutely, I do. I mean, it's, I mean, fast fashion is declining at a rapid rate and, you know, they're closing stores globally all over the world to, you know, um, and that, you know, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
3: Lou, you've recently moved roles in your business. You're on the creative team. Now you're the head of supply chain and sustainability, which I think just goes to show that, you know, basic is making this a priority in terms of your business. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: why you decided to move into that role? And also, what are your aspirations? Well, I think, you know, when the sort of pandemic hit, um, it gave us a really great opportunity to kind of um, you know, you, you get to relook at your whole business because you actually have time to sit down. And obviously, this has been part of our, our brand since the beginning, like 15 years we've been doing, you know, ethical and sustainable practice. Um, but I think what was actually really um, lovely for our business was to have two founding members to be sitting in um, a creative director role with Deb and then to sort of move me across into the sustainability and supply chain. So I think as a brand to have our two co-founders that are leading the charge, which are the two most important parts of our business, um, just made sense and I think... um, I'm very passionate about sustainability and and manufacturing Um, and so the connection between those parts of the business has just allowed us to really kind of, you know, lift the lid on our business, sort of dig a bit deeper and explore sort of ways that we can actually make better choices, do better things um, and then be able to tie that all back in with our product. Um, Yeah, It's just been so lovely to actually work on that and, you know, things like doing the carbon neutral show, you know, being able to have working back with Deb from a creative perspective and delivering a beautiful show and then working back on that from a carbon neutrality, like it just, it just shows other brands that you can do that too. So that's been, um, yeah, it's been amazing and it's, I'm excited about the innovation and, you know, where it's all going to head. So very exciting. And how difficult is it to get that transparency
2: across the entire supply chain? Because it's 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 long. It's big. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of businesses that you're working with. Where do you start? How do you ensure transparency across every step of the way?
1: So we, we, you know, obviously work on a lot of certification and working back with our supply chain. I think, you know, obviously partnership is really important. And we've had, you know, a lot of our partnerships that we've been working with have been, you know, since we started the business, when we you know, built our jersey product 15 years ago. We are still using the same supply chain. You know, fabrics still in our business. So, you know, those those relationships have been a big part of how we have built the business. Um, and because we've worked in that space, you know, we we do have transparency of our supply chain. We do, you know, auditing processes. Um, we do certification checks. Um, so we're constantly you know, making sure that we're ticking the boxes and, you know, no one is perfect. And I think it's important to know that there's never going to be a perfect sustainable brand or, you know, because the industry is enormous. Um, but, you know, all we can do is continue to ask the right questions, put the right process into our into the business um, and, you know, yeah, do the right thing.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, the whole certification thing of, suppliers has really improved over the last couple of years and now there's a couple of um, industry, um, you know, groups that sort of help promote sustainable supply chains so it's become a lot easier to find them. You know, three or four years ago it was actually really hard to try and find sustainable um, mills and, you know, do you have certification? No, you know, like where's your cotton from? I'm not sure, you know, or somewhere, I'll just go check. Um, so, but now they're all, particularly the Europeans, um, are very good at it and they're, they're certified and everything. They tell you exactly where it's from. They've got carbon offset. So, it's really, it's, it's, it becomes easier and easier for brands like us to do it um, uh, because more and more mills realise that the brands want it and the consumers want it. So, it's a virtuous snowball.
2: Lou, I wanted to ask you, um, I'm interested around the design of the clothes, and also for you, Dale, you know, you're making sustainable choices around the materials. But when it comes to design, does that change the way you approach that, making that kind of sustainable
1: choice? Yeah, and I think that's probably the the area that's going to, which is a big conversation at the moment, is really like circularity in design. And look, I think for basic, you know, our principles have always been around longevity, um, so when we do, you know, when we did, well, when I used to, but, you know, obviously Deb now, especially, you know, when she approaches her design process, she really designs with that in mind. Um, and that's around how am I going to design a product that can last in a woman's wardrobe or a man's wardrobe that is not just fast fashion that doesn't get, you know, it's just not part of our brand DNA anyway. Um, but there there certainly is, you know, a lot of conversation around that at the moment and we'll continue to um, raise questions um, and there's, you know, I think from a design perspective too, there's a lot of innovation that's going to start to come around in terms of fabrics and opportunity and development. You know, there's all of um, all that really interesting, you know, mushroom leather that's happening at the moment. I mean, it's just such a great um, new innovation that's happened that, you know, for the leather industry especially because, you know, we all know that vegan leather isn't the right choice either, um, but there was no other alternative. So I think... There's going to be lots, I think, in, a, in the creative space, there's going to be lots of new opportunities to work in a more sustainable way and I think that the more pressure that we put on our fabric mills to develop more sustainably, sustainably, um, you know, is only going to enhance the design process and I think it's a really exciting time for that.
0: Um, so similarly, we have a very, mi- you know, minimal pared back aesthetic. Certainly our swimwear, you know, you can keep that in your wardrobe for 10 years and it won't, you know, it's chlorine resistant and it's, you know, it'll last, it's fabulous. Um, and then with our ready-to-wear, all our apparel is, is, again, you know, quality, you know, we've chosen it for its, its premium nature and that the fact it will um, last a long time. The tension, I, I genuinely feel this tension because we've, originally I started out as, you know, like just sending it to e-commerce sites and then doing direct-to-consumer now wholesale is a big part of our business and, there, you know, it sort of shocks me in some way how, how you've got to produce three or four collections every year mm. and, you know, they always want new and, yeah. um, you know, it's on, it's on full price sale for so long and then it goes on sale, then they want new. And I do struggle with that a little bit. But if you want to be in, you know, global wholesale you sort of got to play the game to a certain extent. Um, You know, my long-term vision is that one day we are just direct-to-consumer, but, you know, I think that'll take a while. You know, we've got to build the brand, we've got to build awareness, and wholesalers, retailers play an important part in that for us. So I sort of, you know, grin and bear it at the moment because I do think that there is in fashion generally with particularly with if you get on that wholesale treadmill um there's a lot of overproduction um, just just there's a lot of new stuff coming the whole time i mean we don't we only we only um, order our fabrics based on our orders we you know we use up our fabrics we don't have excess stock we've never thrown anything in you know away so we don't have a lot of waste but it's because of that, we 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 have to say no when people say, "Can we have more of that? Can we have more of that?" We're like, "No, nah, sorry, we ordered the fabric, we made it, we sold out." Um, so we make those sort of choices, but um, I do think it's a little bit the mentality of the fashion industry for constant newness yeah. is yeah. concerning. But we that's what we make only. We don't use prints. We make just sort of solid colors. So you know that beautiful purple. Um, mauve dress that beautiful bone dress you know it may not be the hit of color of the season next year but put it in your wardrobe four years time i can guarantee be, you yeah. that color's going to be back yeah you know there's only so many colors um and it'll last so it's certainly our intention and desire to have longevity in our product but um yes we we design and make a lot of different stuff all year and i wish i could just make black t-shirts every day
1: mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: I imagine that having to, you know, you're on that treadmill, launching four collections a year, you have to constantly be creative, Constant. coming up with new designs, Constant. new concepts, new collections. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, your creative process and when are you most creative? Like when do your best ideas come to you?
0: Uh, well, my, Carla Clark is our creative director now, so she has, has taken on the mantle of generating all the uh, ideas. <laughs> I did, it I did it for the first four and then now she's um, taken over. Um, but we, uh, Bondo Born is, you know, we make classic shapes in beautiful fabrics and so our big differentiator each season is colour. So colour is sort of our, the genesis of every collection and what inspires us. Um, so we start with the colours first and then we sort of find the fabrics from our group of suppliers um, to match. And then it's about Creating simple, elegant garments with a with a slight twist, with a bit of an edge. You know, it's not. It's not. Um, you know. I, don't, I was going to use the word basic, but <laughs> you're basic. <laughs> you're not basic. You're basic. I'm basic. <laughs> and my wardrobe's full of basic. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's got a bit of an edge, so you do feel fashionable. But yeah. it's it's it doesn't. You know, it's not like you're wearing massive bows and next year bows are out of fashion. You know, it's, it'll it'll stay. Yeah. And what about you? When are you most creative?
1: Um, well, gosh, I'm just thinking back to when I used to um, work on the menswear collections and a lot of... Um, I mean, a lot of what we would start with is, you know, fabrications. And I know, obviously, Deb does the same too, where, you know, a lot of it starts with the fabric and working back with the Italian mills in terms of, um, especially in our mainline collections, especially in terms of new um, textile design. Um, So a lot of it kind of starts in in that process and then things sort of start to come together from there. Um, With our brand, obviously, we have a lot of kind of carryover type product where we things transition from one collection to the next. Um, So similar shapes um, or the same shape will continue sort of season after season. Um, And then, you know, there's always has to be that element of surprise. So, you know, making sure that, you know, each collection there is um, setting a new tone and a new direction and keeping our customer interested and on the journey with us. Um, So yeah, there's a little bit of, you know, bringing bringing past season into the new season, then, you know, taking them onto the next journey.
2: So, Lou, I'm really interested. Obviously, last year we were spending a whole lot of time inside, especially in Melbourne, and we wanted to look all right still, you know, for our Zoom calls because, you know, let's be honest, we were doing that about six times a day. Did that, um, I mean, and, and obviously all the brands were starting to bring out that kind of everyday, you know, luxe, leisure um, range. Did that affect basic at all or did that make you respond in a, in a certain way that you're like, oh, better pull the socks up and... You know, start
1: delighting the customers. Yeah. yeah, look, it was real. I mean, one of the funniest thing that, you know, one of the interesting things that happened to us is that our slouch jersey pant, which is was in our very, very first collection, um, became our number one bestseller 15 years later again. Wow. Um, so obviously, you know, just that casualness, you know, the fact that people could get around in basic. I mean, for us, it was in some ways... Um, it really brought attention to our brand again, and we actually started to talk to a new customer because people were looking for that real casual um, that casual assortment you know we were kind of the go to brand for that kind of product um so you know we were having people wearing you know track pants with you know a quick tailored you know jacket thrown on for a zoom call, and then they'd take that off and put on a beautiful knit and um, so, you know, we had a, and I think the fact, too, that we produced locally in Australia, we were able to, you know, maintain um, production and, you know, continue to, you know, develop product and, and keep sort of talking to our customer, yeah.
3: What about you, Dale? How did COVID affect your business? <laughs> um, It was very scary. Uh, we had we'd
0: made, it was about to be Northern Hemisphere summer and the Northern Hemisphere is our biggest market. So we'd made all this stock, we'd had orders from department stores, resorts around the world, you know, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> um, cancelled, you know, like, oh, God, you know, we, we were meant to be doing this massive um, pop-up in Selfridges in April, we'd shipped stock to Holland, eh, eh cancelled. So it was very scary, we didn't know really what was going to happen. But we, in terms of design, we sort of stuck to our guns, we sort of, you know, we figured that, uh, well, the good news is that Netta Porter and Moda Operandi, as examples, continue to do very well. I'm not quite sure who was buying it and what countries they were in and where they could go that was warm, but um, they still were selling, which was great, and they were still ordering, and so they wanted us to produce the collections continuously, etc. cetera. Um, you know, uh, definitely sales and growth did suffer because there were no de- big department stores, um, but we just we we just kept we kept our... You know, we kept true to our DNA. Um, and then the wonderful light at the end of the tunnel was that Australia got the COVID stitch in under control and then every, every Aussie woman went somewhere to, warm and hot. Wanted to go to the beach. They all went to buy a house. house. And they all <laughs> needed new cozies and yep. nice things to wear. So we did it. We had a brilliant... Australian summer that really made up for our yeah. dip
2: in the northern yeah, hemisphere. Great. So thank you all, you
0: Aussie ladies.
2: Yeah. Who, you know, yeah. Have been on <laughs> yeah, well we're not going back. We're going to be wearing this for the rest of yeah. The- yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're not going back. Well, to actually, Melbourne. I think Ooh. this summer
0: we might be in luck too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not, that, uh, not that I wish for anyone that the borders stay shut, but yeah, uh, it yeah. should be another yeah. good summer for Bondo born. Yeah. everyone will be in Australia again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and Lou, keeping um, a lot of the manufacturing within Australia. Did that play in your favour last year? And how did you manage those relationships?
1: Oh, it was a really, um, it was a pretty difficult time. Um, I guess, you know, I had just sort of stepped into my, into the role a couple of months after it actually, but that's what kind of led into it. But, you know, I really took on the responsibility of looking after our manufacturing partners. Um, obviously a lot of them are kind of family-run businesses that really, you um, we're kind of having a difficult time so I spent you know I would brief in with them every day we would have conversations about what was happening what we need to do for a business we would um, we would work back with our sort of major partners in terms of our retail partners and wholesale accounts to see what kind of stock that they needed um, so we were able to sustain and could keep our manufacturing happening in Australia. And then again, because um, supply became quite limited because a lot of canceled orders, um, there's a lot of shipment issues coming from offshore manufacturing. And we were able to kind of fill um, a lot of those orders that other brands weren't able to. So um, it was actually wonderful for our business because we were able to, um, you know, keep everyone engaged in our business. And then it was also wonderful for our local manufacturing because that was my biggest fear too, was that all of a sudden this industry that was in decline
2: you yeah, know, throw crumbled. this on top of that, yeah. you know,
1: and, and things are really challenged. So I think a couple of months, you know, after sort of going through that process and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, bang, we're back on and, you know, they're all at full speed again. It's just, it was such a nice thing for us actually to come together because we, it was like we all went to war. Yeah. You know, it was like what can we do every day to help keep our business going and, and where's the opportunity and... Um, So in some ways for that, there was so much camaraderie and Mm. and trust that was built through that process.
2: So for the both of you, I'd love to know, you know, we recognise you as industry leaders. I hope that you also recognise yourself as industry leaders, especially around sustainability. What do you both hope for the future of fashion? What would you like to see?
1: Um. Look, I think for me, um, I would love to see um, more government funding to so- support sort of local manufacturing. I think we have such an opportunity here to establish, um, a, a, you know, a manufacturing hub, which is what I like to call it. Um, and I think, you know, again, just as an industry, I think it's so nice to, um, there are so many talented creatives here in Australia and I think definitely on a global scale that, you know, we really do... Um, stand on our own two feet, and I think I'd like to have sort of more support from a global perspective, where you know Australian brands are recognised more globally, um, and you know so many people want a, want a piece of us and piece of Australian lifestyle, and you know I think there's a there's a great opportunity there for really tell our story. I hope that consumers, which are probably mainly women
0: of the world, um, do start to think carefully about how much they need in their wardrobe and whether, they, and it's okay to wear the same, like, you know, the yep. princess, what's her name? Um, princess Mary? Yes. She wears the same outfit. She, does. she wears Kate, the same outfit. She can afford, and Mary, they're pretty good. They, with, exactly. Um, yep. So it's okay to wear the same outfit. It's okay yep. to wear the same things. Um, I, you know, so I, I think that we need to be more conscious as consumers because even though I sell fashion, you know, I don't need you to buy 20 things a year. You know, you can buy one, one nice one, and then one next year. I just think that we need to pull back and think more carefully about our purchases because um, it is a very environmentally challenged industry I think fashion because that whole thing of you've got to make four collections a year and you've got to order all the stock and you've got to order the fabric and then you've got to make it and if you don't sell it and then you know it's and then they dye it and then they make it you know it's just it isn't a um an industry that is really respectful of the planet so I think we as consumers need to drive drive that
3: yeah what is one myth about the fashion industry that you'd like to bust Bit, of a, bit have prepped, of a random question.
2: Sort of prepped us for that one. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> um, just throwing you a curveball there. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Do you know one, one thing that we have reflected on and learnt here? I mean, it's our first time at Fashion Week um, in Sydney, and it's also our first time obviously being a media partner. And I think one thing that has surprised us, and I don't think it's necessarily a myth about the fashion industry, is that everybody that we've met involved in the fashion space has been so warm, so welcoming, so friendly, so giving of their time, so open to talk and have a conversation. And I think sometimes they can get a bit of a bad rap in terms of, you know, the devil wears Prada yes, kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Um, yes, and and that has media. been yeah. an
1: absolute myth that's been busted for me. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I yeah. was going to mention that, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I agree. Look, I think it's a, it's a very new time. I think yeah. you know, I think the industry was certainly like that probably 20 years ago. Yeah. But I think, you know, that type of behaviour now is just not acceptable. It's inappropriate and it gets called out on. So, um, and we're not saving the, you know, we're not um, saving the world. We're making beautiful clothes and doing the, the best that we can. Um, so, yeah, it's good not to take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, definitely.
2: And then lastly, one piece of
1: business advice... That you'd like to share with our listeners? I think, you know, if you want to start your own business, you've got to have a little bit of blind faith because, and you've just got to be resilient and um, have good people around you. I think that's probably one of the, the things I learned very early on is that you're not, you can't do everything. And to also, you know, find the people that are um, your weakness um, and and, and really listen to what they have to say. And, you know, I think you can't do it on your own and have just great people around you that can guide you and support you and and give you really honest feedback. Yeah, all good.
0: Um, I have to hark back to my brand advertising days. If you're going to start a business, try and, well, think very carefully about what you're going to do and that you've got a point of difference. I think it's very competitive most industries most businesses and so you need to try and have a distinct point of difference because it's going to make your life a lot easier if if you have that and then in terms of running the business yeah I totally concur it's all about the team so you if you're the leader of the business you're the founder you know you've got to develop a, a culture that you you know that you set an example for the rest of the team and treat your people like they're your partners and they're you know we're all in this together um, and then have fun.
3: You know,
1: Ugh. it's meant to be fun. Always. Sometimes it's easy. to.
3: It, sometimes you can forget that though, because it can I be know, bloody hard. I know, but I know. We know. always try and remind each other like, oh my God, like let's just not take it so seriously and have Absolutely. a bit of a laugh. you have
0: to have fun. Yeah, you've got to have fun. You yeah. do, you got to do it, because particularly if you start your own business, you're going to be working really hard. Yes. Oh yeah. So yeah, if you don't great. enjoy
3: it, then you know, yeah. What's don't 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 start it. Yeah, do yeah. something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining so us much. today and sharing all about your sustainability practices and your story. We really appreciate it. Thanks and, for having um, us. We can't wait to
2: share it with our listeners. Definitely. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you very much. Woo. Lady Brains is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic. Listener.